seat. Get your Bibles out because hopefully we'll get a chance to use them. If you do have your Bible, open it to the book of Revelation. Uh, For those of you that have been with us, we've, for the past couple of weeks, been in this book. um, And we're going to be spending a lot of time here for the next foreseeable future. And uh, I know that We've talked about this in the past couple of weeks, but the book of Revelation to many is not something they want to mess with. You know, it's, it's for, and it's not because, you know, it's not because it's a bad thing or it's not because even it's a scary thing. Maybe our perception is that it is. The world has kind of turned this into a book of doom and gloom. It's turned it into a book of basically horror stories, but when you see it for what it is, it is not a scary book. It's not a hopeless book. It is very hopeful. This is a revelation. The first sentence calls it this. This is why we call it the book of Revelation. Not the book of Revelations. It's a book of Revelation because here's the revelation. The opening sentence says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to give to his bondservants. So we understand this is a revelation, and I understand that in two different ways. Number one, it's a revelation given by the Father to, to, for Jesus to give to us, but it's also a revelation of him. And as you go through this book, one thing that you walk away with is an understanding of Jesus as our king, as our priest, as our glorified and risen Savior, and you begin to understand him how he describes himself in the opening parts of the letter, the beginning, the end, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the alpha, the omega, king of kings and lord of lords. In fact, that shows up all the way through the letters, this idea that he is ruling and reigning. You know, some people might say, well, this is the book that talks about the Antichrist, right? It's one of the books that really talks about the Antichrist. If you walk away from this letter saying, I, I, it's all about the Antichrist, you've missed it. There is a, that element of Antichrist here. That, that, that story is told. That's part of it. But really what's told to us is not the story of how scary and big the, the Antichrist is, but of Jesus' victory over the Antichrist. Of Jesus' victory over the dragon. Of Jesus' victory over death, hell, and the grave. Of Jesus' victory over every power that's risen against him. This is a story of Jesus' victory, and it's really a story of our victory. Once again, to recap you here, John is an old man by the time he writes this letter. He's Apostle John. He's the last of the original apostles that is alive. He's the guy that's not been martyred. Everybody else at this point has died and died a violent death. John... They tried to kill him according to church tradition and church history. And some pretty reliable church historians say, you know, they tried to kill him. And they describe how they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him in oil. They tried to do a bunch of things. He did not succumb to death. God kept him alive. And I believe God kept him alive for this purpose. And we find him on the Isle of Patmos, which is a, an isle, a prison isle, an isle for exiles. Domitian is emperor at this time. He's an emperor who believes he is uh, divine. He believes that he's worthy of worship. He's not just worthy to, uh, to rule. He's not just worthy to be emperor. He's worthy of worship. Not only worthy of worship, but if you don't worship him, you are convicted of treason. You're convicted of, uh, ironically, the, the early Christians were often convicted of atheism, uh, which seems weird now, doesn't it? That they would be convicted of atheism, but Uh, they did not worship the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. They did not worship the emperor as God. John, living in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, um, was one of the most dangerous guys around. As an old man, he's one of the most dangerous guys around. Because here's a man who dared to stand up to the emperor and say, no, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to bow to you. And my friends here, my brothers and sisters, they're not going to bow either. We're not going to worship you. So the emperor seeks to make an example of him, throws him on this island. Uh, This island was made up of political prisoners and hardened criminals as well. And depending on how bad they saw you, they'd send you to one of two places on that island. Um, Some of it was very hard labor. Some of it was just basically a way to keep you away from civilization. Uh, But a, a large number of them, as soon as they'd land on the island, would be flogged 
as uh, just a way of showing them who was boss, a way of showing them and stripping them of their dignity and of any sense of control that they might have had. It's pretty hard for an old man to go through that. In fact, he doesn't just go through it, he survives it. And when Domitian dies, the next emperor in line actually releases a bunch of political prisoners. Releases a bunch of prisoners that were convicted of treason or, or not worshiping the emperor. And John was one of these guys. John actually dies in Ephesus. He doesn't die on this island. He dies back home. Uh, but, you know, many times we say, we use the description, a godless place, right? Like, this is a godless place. It's, it's just bereft of all beauty. It's, it's got no life to it. I'm sure if you were to be put on Patmos, you might say, this is a godless place. But it's in that place that Jesus Christ himself reveals himself to John. John gets a vision, not only pertaining to things that are happening now, but things that have happened and things that will yet happen. And we've said this before, but you have to understand when you read this letter that we've stepped into a different, different realm, all right? John finds, he says, I found myself in the spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, I used to think that meant, he's, you know, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I used to think, thought, think that meant that he was choosing to be spiritual on a Sunday. But when you look at it, the, the, in fact, the, the Sunday wasn't called the Lord's day. Uh, for much later in the church, in church history. Um, and neither, that word that says I was in the spirit implies uh, not, not like a, an intentional, I decided to be in the spirit, but rather uh, almost a catching up, almost being caught off guard, finding yourself immediately off guard in the spirit. So the Lord's day could refer to the fact that um, the there was a first day of every month that was called the Emperor's Day or the Lord's Day. That Greek word that's used there, that he uses for Lord's Day, was well known in the time that this was written. It was well used by the rest of the emperor for that particular day. Another way of looking at it is that he was caught up into, uh, 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 caught up into the spirit, caught up into this, this uh, different type of seeing things, this, this world that we don't see. And uh, if you look throughout the scripture, the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, is that day when God gets what he wants, when his will is done. And so you could also look at it in a sense that he was caught into this sense of the day of the Lord. But I mean, it's very easy to say, you know, it was the first of the month or something like that. But it's not that, you know, I believe John was a man of prayer. I believe he was a man who sought out the presence of God. But this, if you, if you look at it in the original language, this implies that he found himself all of a sudden caught up. And we'll get to it later, but he hears a voice behind him. And, and his it's, it's voice, voice sounds like many waters. It's, it's something that, you know, he finds familiar and yet foreign. And he turns around and he sees Jesus. I'm pretty excited to get to that part because that's some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. But tonight I want to talk to you about uh, his little preamble here. When he says, Here, here's me, here's the guy that's writing this. I, John, write this letter to you. In Revelation chapter 1, he says, well, let's start right at the beginning. Just as a, we've already gone through these first eight verses, but I just want to read them again. He says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this book of Revelation should be a testimony of Jesus. If it's to you just a freak story, something good to study around Halloween, it's something like that, you're reading it wrong. It is a testimony of Jesus. And like we said before, you know, I, I believe you should immerse yourself in the Gospels. I believe you should just eat up the book of Acts. I believe you should enjoy the epistles and see Jesus all through it. I believe you should look at the Old Testament and find how Jesus reveals himself in those Old Testament books. But if you haven't seen Jesus in the book of Revelation, you're not getting a full picture of Jesus. Even Jesus as he walked the earth 
was, was the perfect rep- representation of the Father. He was the image of the invisible God. But there's an important piece to knowing Jesus that's found in this book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, you see him as he is glorified. You see a risen Savior. You see a glorified King. You see him as he is right now. He's not walking the earth right now. We're walking the earth right now. He's empowered his church. He's put his spirit in us so that we could be as he was and as he is. And yet he is ruling and reigning. So this is a testimony of Jesus Christ. And he says, tell it even all that he saw. In verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Thank God, that's us. And heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace come from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming in with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, here's what we're getting to. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I, John, I'm your brother. Now, a man like that, an an apostle of I mean, the last remaining of the original 12, there were, I, I, I believe very strongly that it wasn't just 12 apostles and then they stopped being apostles because we see throughout the scripture that he actually names other people and, and identifies them as co-workers in, in the role of the apostle. The scripture says in Ephesians 4, he's given us apostles. I believe that there's more than just the 12. I believe they're still part of the church today. But you, you got to admit, somebody who was with Jesus the guy that put his head on Jesus' chest, one of the original 12. This is a big deal. And so you, you might be forgiven for living in that day and age and seeing John as like a superhero. Like this guy that we, we really can't touch. This is a super spiritual guy. But he, he goes to great efforts to, to identify himself even though he is an apostle to them, even though he is a father in many ways to them, a leader to them. He doesn't pull rank here. He says, I'm your brother and I am a fellow partaker. When you study this word out, it's, it's, it's the idea of, of partnership. It's the idea we're in this together, that we are experiencing this together and we're in this together. We're partners in this work together. Fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. Now, these are three important words that you shouldn't separate. We can talk about them separately, but they go together. They go together. Because if you were to separate, separate tribulation and say, well, we'll go through tribulation, and you didn't talk about the fact that you're in that kingdom and that perseverance, that endurance has been given to you in Christ, then that tribulation will crush you. You wouldn't survive it. If you talked about just the perseverance without the kingdom element, you wouldn't know why you're able to persevere. If you, if you took the kingdom and, 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 and just cut out the tribulation and said, well, if it's the kingdom, it's just going to be flowers and roses, then you're going to be surprised when, when some of this stuff presses in on you. In fact, that's what Peter says. He says, don't be surprised when this stuff happens. Jesus said, I, I'm telling you these things that are going to happen to you so that you don't lose heart. Why does he have to say that? Because he's explaining to them, in the world you'll have tribulation, but in me you have peace, not as the world gives, right? He says, take courage, I've overcome the world. But he had to tell them, and sometimes Jesus was just plain blunt about it. He said, even your own family will betray you, they'll throw you into prison, some of you will be put to death. That's not fun to hear, but he says, I got to tell you this so that when it happens, you don't lose heart because I've overcome the world. This can't steal the victory in me. This can't steal the kingdom from you. In fact, he says, some of you will be put to death, but don't worry, they can't harm a hair on your head. 
which those two ideas don't seem to play in the same field together, do they? Some of us will be put to death, but don't worry, that won't mess up your hair. Oh, thank God. Thank God. He says they really can't harm you. Even if they harm that body you live in, they can't harm you. These things, I don't, I don't believe that, that uh, our God takes pleasure in, in, in your suffering. But I do know this, he's prepared us for a battle. He's prepared us for a fight because we're overcomers. But you can't overcome unless there's something to overcome. And the message we see in the book of Revelation is one over and over of overcomers. Of Jesus as overcomer and his body as overcomers. We're going to read in the coming months, we're going to read seven letters that he wrote to the churches of the time. To seven churches. There's many more that he didn't write to, but these seven he wrote to. And the one thing that pops up, the common element that you see over and over again is to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. And of course, women, you're included in that. To those that overcome, this is what I'll do. So, if there were nothing that were pressing against you, there'd be no reason to talk about overcoming. But there is a battle we've been born into. There's a battle we've been brought into. But it's a battle that's already been destined to victory through Jesus. You've already, you're already on the winning side. He says, I'm already the ruler of the kings of the earth. I'm the alpha, the omega. I'm going to tell you the things. I'm going to tell you how it ends so that you don't lose heart, so that you have some hope. So when I read this, I see him saying, we, I'm part of this. I'm with you in this. You know, it it could be easily said that that somebody in, 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 whether it be in Ephesus or Smyrna, because the Bible tells us Jesus writes a letter to the, the people in Smyrna, and it seems like they're going through some rough stuff. It seems like they're one of the hardest hit churches out of the seven. And he says, but I'm with you. I'm on your team, guys, and you're going to overcome through this. And so it must have been so heartening for them to hear that John said, he didn't just say, I know you're going through some stuff. He says, I'm here with you. I am partaking of this with you. And let me tell you, this isn't going to defeat us. This isn't going to beat us. Jesus has overcome. I am your fellow partaker in the tribulation. But thank God, not just tribulation, also the kingdom and the perseverance, which is in Jesus. That word perseverance literally means to stay under, to stay under something that's weighing, to stay under something that's, 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 that's threatening to press and to crush you, but you are staying and you are bearing up through it and you're not giving up your position and you're not running away and, and, and you're not fainting and you're not giving up or quitting, but you're standing in the place that God puts you. And there's no human reason, there's no human ability that could cause you to stand in these circumstances if not for the fact that you are not just a partaker in the tribulation, but you are a partaker in the kingdom. And you are a partaker in the perseverance which is in Jesus. Not your perseverance, not your willpower, not your strength, but that power of Jesus Christ. It says you can stand and you can win and you can fight and you won't have to run away. You'll stay where I put you and no matter what the enemy throws at you, you'll still be standing. He says that I'm here on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, so often we assume that... um, we assume that, that something is happening because we did something wrong, right? Like, why is it hard? It should be easy, shouldn't it? What am I doing wrong? Am I not, did I not follow the 12, 13, 15 steps I'm supposed to follow? Did I not do that? I mean, what did I do wrong? This person seems to have it all together. What, what's going on here? And perhaps it's just perhaps because you are part of this advancing kingdom, when the kingdom of God is advancing, it is always advancing, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rile up some other kingdoms. It says there might be a fuss about it. One of the, the first church that's written to in, in this letter, in this book, the first letter that's sent out is to Ephesus. You guys remember the story of Ephesus? 
It was some of the greatest manifestations of the kingdom in a city that you see in the book of Acts. You see these people in one of the most spiritually corrupt, perverse, dark cities in the empire. Turn from idolatry. Turn from sorcery. You see evil spirits going out of people like that. Great victory. But when that starts to happen, what happens after? The, the, the people that are making their money off the idolatry don't like that. So what do they do? They're riled up. They start a riot. They say, these guys, if they keep on, nobody's going to even care about our little idols that we make. Nobody's going to visit this temple. In fact, Artemis that the whole world worships will fall into disrepute. The Bible says the word of the Lord was prevailing, was growing mightily and was prevailing in that city. You want to know why there was a riot against the Christians? Because they were doing something right. Because the kingdom was advancing. And when the kingdom of God advances, listen, God is a God that does not share. He does not play well with other kingdoms. Because these other kingdoms are false kingdoms. These domains, these, the, the darkness that so covers the earth, he is spreading his light. And they don't mix. And so when his kingdom spreads, and his kingdom is spreading, it knocks into some other kingdoms and some other strongholds. Jesus sent his disciples, and he says, go and preach the kingdom of God. And when you go preach the kingdom of God, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out evil spirits. Freely you've received, now freely give. You know, when they came back, when they came back to Jesus, they were celebrating. What were they celebrating? You know, I'm sure they were pretty excited about the people that were healed. I'm sure they were pretty excited about the people that received the gospel. But you know, the one thing that excited them more than anything, it says they came back and were excited that even the demons were subject to them in the name of Jesus. So preaching the kingdom meant knocking down the other kingdoms. There was control in those areas. There, was pe there were people that were being controlled. And when Jesus sent the disciples out, preaching the kingdom didn't just mean, hey guys, Here's, here's, another, here's another thing that you can add to the things that make you special. Here's something else you can put on your Facebook profile. I'm also a believer. I, I like Jesus. No, when they came and preached, there, were, there was captives being set free. There were, there were people that were bound that were being loosed. There was, there was a dramatic shift in the power structure. So that riles some people up. And it always will. In Philippi, we, we remember the story of Paul and Silas being in prison and praising God and the earthquake came and the jail opened and, and the shackles fell off. We remember that part, but we got to remember why they were in prison to start with. They were in prison because a little girl was a slave, a, a literal slave who had a spirit controlling her so that she could tell people's fortunes. And Paul and Silas cast that spirit out of that girl. She was set free. And the people that owned her were so mad. Why? Because they're going to lose money. So the kingdom of God messed with their little kingdom. That they had these guys thrown in prison. So being a partaker of the kingdom, an advancing kingdom, a kingdom that is spreading, you're going to come into times where people aren't exactly happy that the kingdom of God is spreading. See, we kind of assume that people are all going to be happy that the kingdom of God is spreading because the kingdom of God is good. But the kingdom of God means he's king. And newsflash, guys, let me just tell you, not everybody wants him to be king. I'm, a lot of people in the room might say, at some point, you didn't want him to be king. Thank God he's your king now, but you may not have wanted that. So when you come into contact with people, listen, for, for the Ephesians, it was that they were going to lose money. The kingdom of God would not, would not cooperate with their idolatry. So they're going to lose money. Same thing with the Philippians. In fact, money often has a, something to do with it. And a shifting of power. So he says, I'm a partaker with you in the persecution, the tribulation, and the kingdom, and the perseverance which is in Christ. And I take great hope. You know, it, it's like... Um, it's like when we read Paul or Peter talking during the reign of Nero of honoring the emperor, 
of honoring those in authority and praying for all those in authority. You know, I take comfort in that because all my life, we've never had in this country a, a, a ruler or a, a leader in government that's been as bad as Nero. Right? And you might not like them. They might pass some laws that you disagree with. And I'm not saying I liked them all, but you know, they're, not, they're also not lighting Christians on fire. Right? They're not throwing people to lions. So they're a little bit better. There's improvement. There's progress. And so here's why I take comfort in that. I take comfort in that because if they can honor that guy, I can honor this guy. If they can pray for that guy, I can pray for this guy. Right? It doesn't mean I have to vote for him. doesn't mean I have to agree with him. But I can honor and pray for that ruler and authority. See, if, if Peter and Paul and those guys had had just the loveliest rulers in the world, the best people in government, then we'd read this scripture and we'd say, well, yeah, but they haven't had to deal with what we've had to deal with. But they had to deal with far worse. So if they dealt with that, surely we can deal with this. Well, I also take some comfort in knowing that a guy like John, an old man who, who might have been tired of standing when everybody's trying to knock you down, and a man like John who's been thrown on a prison aisle, been tempted to be executed multiple times, has the emperor of the most powerful empire in the world, hates him. And this guy says, hey, Things are good. We can persevere. I'm with you guys. Don't worry. Jesus is conquering. Jesus is the king of all the rulers. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So if a man like that can say that, I surely can say that. This perseverance that's in Christ, that idea of steadfastness, that idea that you're not going to quit, you're not going to run, you're not going to give up when being pressed because that's what that word tribulation means. That word thlipsis means to be pressed. You see that throughout the New Testament. There's times where he says oh, we're being pressed on all sides. There's another place where he says we were pressed beyond our strength. There's another time he says we were pressed but we're not crushed. We're persecuted but we're not abandoned. We're perplexed but we're never despairing. Why? Because the life of God is in us. Before he says all that, he says, we have a treasure in us. We have this treasure in jars of clay and earthen vessels to show that this mighty power is of God and not of us. So when we're pressed, we're not crushed. When we're persecuted, we are not abandoned. When we are perplexed, we're not despairing. We are caring about the death of that Jesus experienced so that we might experience the life of Jesus in our bodies. That's a dramatic thought. So he's saying because of the treasure in us, no matter what they throw at us, we don't quit. No matter what they throw at us, the enemy cannot crush the people of God. That's a cool thought. Have you had a bad day? Ever? I have. I love that picture in Ephesians 6 where, I mean, it is the most humiliating picture for the devil, I'm sure, because it, it literally describes him sh- just throwing everything he's got, everything he's got, his whole nuclear arsenal. And then the man or the woman of God is still standing at the end of it. You ever see the Looney Tunes where, where uh, Wile E. Coyote is, is trying to kill the roadrunner. He never does. But he always, there's always some TNT involved, right? Like, when I was a kid, I just thought there'd be a whole lot more TNT, a lot more anvils falling. I mean, I've barely ever seen anvils in my life, but I thought they'd be a big part of my life. A lot more quicksand. You know, all these things that cartoons tell you there's going to be a ton of this stuff. There wasn't. But, you know, you remember, it, Wiley Coyote, I mean, he, he would... It, Overkill was an understatement. He'd always just, I don't know what he'd do. If it worked, he can't eat the roadrunner because he half the time was trying to just, you know, incinerate him. There'd be nothing left. But, you know, inevitably it would always backfire on him, right? And he'd be left smoking. <laughs> but somehow he'd, he'd, somehow he survived all this. But, you know, it's like the enemy is throwing everything at the people of God. And they're still standing at the end of the story. They're still going, beep, beep, you know, and, and moving on. 
That's a, that's a good thing. Now, that word for tribulation, for pressing, for crushing, if you look in ancient literature, because, you know, Brother Spear will tell you that Greek has changed. It's got some similar elements, but it's changed quite a bit in 2,000 years. So sometimes it helps us to look back at the writings of the time to see how a word was used. And this, one of the first instances of this word uh, being used, I mean, it had been used for a lot for pressing and crushing, but one of the more distinct uses was when they used it for an ancient form of torture um, where they would actually put somebody on a table and have a suspended huge stone that they would press on top of their chest, but they'd be holding it back a little bit so it wouldn't be the full weight of it. But you'd feel that you're, you're being crushed and the air is being uh, pressed out of you and you'd get a chance to, to tell them whatever they want to hear and the more you didn't tell them what they wanted to hear, the more weight they'd allow to crush you and crush the wind and cr crush even your bones until eventually they just, you know, bring it back up and then let it go and, and, and absolutely demolish somebody. That was one of the first uses, not first uses, but that was one of the distinct uses of that word in ancient time was this idea of a form of torture where they would literally just crush somebody to death. And so when you see the attempt of the enemy to crush the people of God to the point where they give up, to the point where he destroys something in them. And then you see the fact that throughout the scripture, there is always the attempt to crush the people of God. But he says, listen, we are pressed. So the weight's on. We are pressed, but we are not crushed. Well, maybe you felt pressure. And we've talked about this before, but it's like that diver that goes deep. And the deeper he goes, he's got to go at a certain pace because his body's adjusting to the outside pressure. As he's taking in oxygen, you can't come up too fast or else you'll experience the bends. You'll experience that, that rapid uh, change of pressure will, 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 hurt, will kill you. But the idea is, is if there's equal pressure on the inside then the pressure on the outside will not crush you, will not destroy you. And what we see throughout the scripture is this idea that what's inside of you is a lot more powerful than what's on the outside of you. Which is why in the book of Philippians where Paul is probably under the most intense pressing of his whole life. In fact, he says, I am hard pressed to know whether I should choose to live or to die. He's experiencing that pressing and he writes about joy more than any other book in the Bible because he's saying that joy is the inward pressure pushing out. That joy causes us, that hope, that joy, all of these things cause us to be able to stand and not to be crushed. Jesus said that when he told the parable of the sower and he talked about the, uh, talked about the, the uh, rocky soil, people that have a shallow relationship with Jesus, a shallow understanding of him. So they'll come to church and say amen, but doesn't really go past that. He said they're like somebody whose roots don't go down deep because there's rocky, shallow soil. And then when all of the, the, the sun comes out and, and, and it's hot, their roots dry up because they have no firm root structure. They're not tapped into water. And then he interprets that and he says, this is what that means. He says, when persecution arises or pressing arises because of the word, that's interesting, isn't it? It's not arising because you did something wrong. It's arising because of the word. And the word's having an effect in your life. There is a, an opposite force that's trying to crush that word out of you, trying to keep you out of it. And he says, if you don't have that root structure, it will. But what happens if your roots go down deep? What happens if the, the word of God has come into good soil? He says, even when the, when the sun comes out, you're tapped in. Jeremiah 17 says that you are like a tree planted by a stream, that even when every bush around you is drying up and dying, you're tapped into the river of God, and you're not dying. In fact, you're experiencing abundance of life because you're tapped into him. I, I mentioned Ephesians 6, but I just want to read it so you get that picture in your head of the of the contrast of what the enemy is attempting and what the people of God are experiencing. He says, finally, this is Ephesians 6, verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord. If that's not the key, I don't know what the key is, right? Be strong in the Lord. I mean, I've seen, um, I've seen a lot of Christians that put their faith in their, their willpower, right? Like, I, I, can, I can get through almost anything. You know, I grew up in a tough upbringing. I've, I've been through some tough things in my life, school of hard knocks and whatnot, and I, I could pretty much get through anything. Well, maybe you've experienced getting through most things, but the kind of pressing we're talking about is not the easiest thing in the world. In fact, stronger people than you have succumbed to that pressure. He's not telling you to be strong in your own reserves of strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Think about the might of God. Can you just picture that? The might of God, the, 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 the performed, the active strength of God. How strong is God? He says, be strong in that strength. A lot of us would say, I mean, if, if we were to say the devil's about to throw everything he's got at you, that's not a good feeling. We, we don't want to look forward to that. And, and some people would hear that and say, I don't think I'll survive it. But is there ever a suspicion in your mind that the enemy will crush God himself? Anybody in the room think God's at risk here? No. no. Why, God's just much more powerful. We, we've talked about this before, but the devil is not the anti-God, right? He is not God's rival. He's not the opposite of God. God is a creator. Satan is created. Satan is a fallen angel. They're not equals. And so God is infinitely stronger. Now, he says, be strong in that might, in his might. If God can't be crushed, you can't be crushed as long as you're in that strength. Right? right. Even if they were to kill you, you couldn't be crushed. Well, some people are not excited by that thought, but I mean, you know, you'll probably be fine. Uh, I, I, I remember at our youth camp, uh, Josh Bingle, who was our guest speaker from Washington, he uh, was talking to the youth about... Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three Hebrew children that stood up to Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and would not bow. And as he was preaching, you know, he kind of he read through, and he was, he was making points on some things, but he read through something fairly quickly, but it caught me like it never caught me before. Um, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar seemed pretty eager to give these guys another chance if they would recant. Like, he was furious, but he wasn't so furious that he threw him right away. He actually was really giving him a chance, like, guys, I'm serious. I'm not joking around here. You know how you do with your kids? You count to three, and you're, you give them a three, but you're like two and a half, two and three quarters, because <laughs> you really don't want to follow through on whatever you're threatening. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was like. If you just, I'm giving you another shot, guys. And what stood out to me that I had never caught before was it seems like the enemy would rather have a compromised believer than a dead believer. Nebuchadnezzar would rather them compromise than even die. And I think the enemy would rather have a compromised Christian than a dead Christian. But when you're standing in this strength, you don't have to compromise. He says here, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. You will be able. You will be able. That's a definite statement. You will be able. Talk about somebody who, who believes in you. And really, it's not believing in you. It's believing in him and Christ in you. You will be able. There's no question. There's no loopholes. There's no situation where this might not be true. You will be able to stand Firm against the schemes of the devil. So that idea of endurance that we talked about, that we saw John say, I'm a partaker of the tribulation, the kingdom, and the perseverance, that steadfastness, that endurance of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here, that standing firm, that staying where God puts you, that staying in the place that he's called you, that staying in his truth, that staying in faith, that staying in hope, that standing and keeping yourselves in the love of God. Nothing can drag you out of that. He says, you'll be able to stand firm. I like that. 
There's not a picture of you wavering. You'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, so people aren't our problem, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that, and this is the second time he's going to say this, you will be able. Once again, same wording, you will be able. You will be able to resist in the evil day. I know I've said this before. What in the world does evil day look like? I think it looks like Wiley Coyote getting all the shipments from Acme he can get. That's the worst day. The evil day. Have you ever had a day in your life that you described as not just an evil day, but the evil day? Maybe, you know, so often in the scripture, day is not just a 24-hour period, but a season in your life. Maybe a season where you're like, boy, that was the season, the evil day. Maybe you say, I hope that was it. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that was the evil day. I hope there's not a worse one coming. But what does he say? I think the evil day sounds like, uh, you know, an enemy unloading his full arsenal on you. But you will be able to resist in the evil day. Having done everything, stand firm. Now, we talk a lot of, like I've told you in the book of Revelation, we're going to see a lot of victory. But often we picture the victory as the uh, forward movement, uh, uh, the offensive march. And there's a lot of that to be talked about. But there's also a lot to be said about the times where you're supposed to just stand. And you say, how long am I supposed to stand here? Keep standing. Where the most offensive thing you can do is just not fall back, but stand. And then when you stand, it's like Rocky. When you're taking those punches and you're still standing, now's the time to counterattack and see victory, see overcoming, see breakthrough. He says, you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You see that? And it's so wonderful that he says, you'll be able to extinguish all of his arrows. There's not an arrow he's got. There's not an arrow he could invent. There's not, a, there's not an arrow that he could dream up that you will not be able to quench by faith as you stand firm. I think this is what John is communicating to the church. That yes, when we joined ourselves to Jesus and his kingdom, we joined ourselves to the very real possibility, in fact, the expectation that there will be tribulation. But you also join yourself to a kingdom. Now that is an everlasting kingdom that cannot be crushed, cannot be destroyed, cannot be diminished. And you joined yourself to the perseverance of Jesus Christ himself. So you see that picture where Paul says, we've, been, we've had a rough go. But he says, in all our afflictions, God is the God of all comfort. And that word comfort is, is the word parakaleo, literally the one who came aside, alongside to hold you up, to, to hold on to you, to, to help you, to stand beside you and keep you standing. He says, in all the affliction, he is the God of all comfort. He has more than enough comfort for the stuff we're going through. In fact, he has enough comfort for us that we've got comfort for you. See, he says, for as many as are the tribulations in Christ, he said there's even more of the strength, the comfort of Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus that's persecuting the church. We know that, right? He is not our persecutor. He's our deliverer. Amen. He's not our problem. He's our solution. But you have an enemy. You've been born into a time of war. But thank God, you are on the side of victory. And there's nothing that exists in heaven, on earth, below the earth that has the ability to take away from you what Jesus himself has put there, has the ability to crush you. You can't be crushed when we stand in the strength that's been given us. So I want to... I 
put this out to you because we're going to bring this to a very practical place. For John, it's one thing to say, you know, it's not easy being an apostle. It's not easy being an old man who's still working hard for the people of God. But it's also not easy to stand by your convictions when there's a real consequence to it. Could have easily said, let a young man take this job. Let a young man go to prison. I, I've done my time. I've gone through it. But he knew he was stationed somewhere, that God put him somewhere. He wasn't going to move. This is my role. This is what I've been called to do. I'm not moving off of this. I'm not backing away. I'm not, I'm not quitting. I'm not fainting. I'm staying here. You'll notice in every good thing that God puts in your life, there will be a force to take it away. Immediately, Satan came to steal the word. That was the first thing, right? In the parable of the sower, the hard heart, immediately Satan came to steal the word. But what was the second thing? Persecution arose because of the word. What does that tell you? That tells you for everything God plants in you, there's a force trying to take it away. That force has no power to take it away as long as you don't give it up. Satan can't take the call of God off your life. Satan can't take the gifts of God from you. There's no force or power that can take what God's put in you. But you can, you can sure give up that call. And that's often what he does, doesn't he? He can't take it away outright. So what does he do? He gets you to give it up. Whether it's through the condemnation of what you think about yourself, what others say about you, or whether it's very real tribulation, that very real pressure on your life. If you look at the times in your life where you've experienced the most pressure, then maybe, yeah, it was because you were out of position, right? Sometimes we're out of position. Sometimes you get off the trail, and what do you know? The brush is thick. But it's other times you're on the right path, and you've riled up some forces that don't want you pressing any further. There's an enemy that doesn't want you to take it, make any further progress. But there's a God who says, wherever I tell you to go, you'll go. When I tell you to stand, you'll stand. When I tell you to move, you'll move. And that's the most powerful thing in the world. So we are companions in this. We're companions in the kingdom of God. We're fellow partakers in his kingdom. We're fellow partakers in, yes, tribulation. But we are fellow partakers in the perseverance that is in Jesus Christ. Grab on to that perseverance. You might be a, mo a very weak person in the natural, in your own strength, a very weak person, kind of person that, that didn't ever stick to anything very long, kind of person that moved on when things got hard. But now that you've become a believer, you've got a different source to draw from. You don't draw from your reserve of, of strength. You draw from his strength. And his strength never runs out. This is the strength. Be strong in the Lord, in the power, the strength of his might. That is so important. Because, and you know what? I, I'll tell you this. This is what I believe. I believe that's harder for a strong person to believe. I mean, a weak person already knows that, that I can't do it without him. They figure that out so quick. A weak person realizes, like, I got no shot. So I need you. It's a person who thinks they're strong that, that has to relearn how to draw from a different source. Because you've always been the strong one. You've been the one that the family comes to when things are going wrong. And you somehow manage to keep it together. It's just at some point you have a breaking point because you can't handle everything you're trying to bottle up and keep. So we have to relearn. If, you're, if you are that strong, it's always been strong. Always been the one everyone ran to. Always been the one everybody leaned on. You need to know how to cast your care onto him. You need to know how to say like David said, blessed be the Lord our God who daily bears our burdens. You need to be able to know how to be strong in the Lord because you've been so strong in your own strength for so long. Some of us have to relearn how to be strong in the Lord because in the evil day that we talk about, nobody stays standing unless they are backed by the strength of God himself. And that's available to every believer. Put on the armor of God. That's a choice. The armor of God is not 
something that you just pray over yourself. It's something you have to walk in. I walk in truth. I walk in righteousness. I walk in the knowledge of my salvation. I walk in that. I walk in the gospel of peace. And thank God. If God is for us, it could be against us. You are a partaker in this. You're a partaker in the kingdom. You're a partaker in tribulation. You are a partaker in perseverance. We're companions in this, and we're moving forward together. We're going to see a whole lot of overcoming throughout this, this book. We're going to see a whole lot of victory. Victory comes after battles, right? Overcoming comes after opposition. Know this, you might be in a battle, but it's a setup for victory. Look to the victory. In fact, even better than that, look to the victor. Amen. Stand with me, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. God, we rely on you. We look to you, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. We know, Lord, that there, the race we've been called to run is meant to be run with endurance. I know there are probably some in the room who say, my history has been a history of cutting and running when things got hard. And there's others in the room who say, my history is a history of those that I'll be strong. If everybody else will quit her, I'm, I'm somebody that sticks to it. But may both of those groups bow their knee and say, we humble ourselves that we may receive the grace of God. We can't do this by ourselves. We can't do this without you. So Lord, we look to you and your strength. We thank you that we are partakers of the kingdom. The kingdom that can't be shaken. The kingdom that can't be knocked down. The kingdom that can't be destroyed. That we have the very royalty of Christ running through our veins that we have been called out of darkness into your kingdom, into light. So, Lord, we look to you for strength. We look to you that we know that when the pressing from the outside gets stronger, then the pressure from the inside gets even greater. What's inside us, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. As John wrote earlier in his letter, that we have already overcome the world. You've overcome the world, and whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So thank God we have overcome through Jesus Christ. You've made us to be kingdom, a kingdom of priests to God, royal priesthood, a holy nation, and nothing can steal the treasure within us. So thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you guys.